Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. For those of you who follow the goings-on of the Horror Writers Association, we're just a few weeks out from this year's StokerCon, easily the most anticipated convention for horror authors, in this part of the world anyway. And while there are sure to be many excellent talks and workshops, as always, the thing I look forward to most has to be the Bram Stoker Awards. As usual, we've been working on securing this year's nominated stories in the short story category for production on the show. I'll keep you posted on that. But I wanted to put the bug in your ear in case you'd like to take part in the festivities yourself. While things are in full swing in person this year in Pittsburgh, StokerCon continues to offer a virtual component to the events as well. So if you'd like to get in on all the horrific action, head over to StokerCon2023.com and grab yourself a virtual ticket. At just 55 bucks, that seems like a pretty sweet deal. Speaking of horrific events, I'm hoping to take a peek at something terrifyingly close to home this weekend the Dark Bridges Film Festival. It's been a while since I've been to a proper horror film event, and this one's been a lot of fun in the past. There's a pretty diverse lineup, too, that ranges from slashers to monster movies to claymation terrors. I'll let you know if I encounter anything that's particularly ripe for recommending to you, Children of the Night. Regardless, it should be a frighteningly good time. Our most blood-curdling thanks goes out this week to not one, but two patrons. Spencer Desparty, who you may recognize as one of the voices you've heard here on the show, and Dion Bassery, who's returned to the darkness behind the veil after some time away. Thank you so much, Spencer and Dion. We appreciate you more than words can say. Human words, anyway, and my Cthuvian is a little too rusty to do it justice. 
we have one tale for you this evening, which comes to us from Emily Ruth Verona. Emily Ruth Verona received her Bachelor of Arts in Creative Writing and Cinema Studies from the State University of New York at Purchase. She is a Pinch Literary Award winner and a Bram Stoker Award nominee. Her fiction and poetry have been featured in anthologies and magazines, including The Pinch, Lamplight Magazine, Mystery Tribune, The Gastling, Black Telephone Magazine, and Coffin Bell. She lives in New Jersey with a very small dog. Children of the Night, join me for Emily Ruth Verona's The Abbey, first published in Lamplight Magazine, 2020. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I drove 19 hours halfway across the country, just to see the spot which drove my brother mad. It didn't change anything, but I thought it might help me understand. Only, here now, frozen dirt beneath my feet and ash-gray clouds overhead, I'm not sure I understand a fraction of what I should. I don't know what I'd expected. Perhaps some sort of epiphany shooting like an electrical current through my body. An instant where everything just sizzled and then clicked. But all I see is stone and neglect and disarray. Being here feels so very much like being anywhere else. Maybe when all is said and done, that's the point. Don't trust her, Landon said. No, begged. When I saw him at the center this morning. Whatever you do, don't trust her. Promise me. We were the only two people in the visiting room. Caramel-colored light billowed in through the long wall of windows. There was a certain calm to it, a certain semblance of peace. The big warm sun has since given way to clouds, but at the time the sunshine had shown sign that it might be a fair day. A pleasant one, even except, of course, for the fact that my brother is being kept under lock and key at the Willowbrook Psychiatric Center.
and I, well, I am back in Jersey. She's in here. It was the first thing he said when I sat down at the table, before I could ask how he was or what had happened. He leaned in and tapped his temple with his forefinger, as if some deep, dark wrongness was buried there between flesh and bone. The scabbing along his brow was spotty and fresh. He must still be picking at the crusting skin. Landon can't help himself, poking at scabs. I can feel it. Feel what? I asked. But to this he shook his head. It was as if time and place and sense had flaked away from him like dead skin. Somewhere in his face I could still see the little boy who'd grown up with me, his sharp azure eyes and small mouth twisted in a frown. My brother, he used to cry a lot, especially in front of our foster parents. It always embarrassed the other kids. There had been five of us total. They called him a baby, a wuss. He wasn't crying now, though, and the absence of those tears made me more uncomfortable, not less. Willowbrook called me because I'm listed as Landon's emergency contact. At 18, he went ahead and changed his last name to mine, said it would make our relation look more official. We adopted each other. That was how he chose to describe it. Foster siblings don't count as official siblings under the eyes of the law, so we fudged the law. Even at Willowbrook, the woman at the front desk looked over my dark hair and dark eyes and brown skin with skepticism when I told her I was Laurel Lewis, sister to the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Landon Lewis. I could see the gears in her brain turning, trying to figure out if one of our parents had gone and remarried for the next kid or if, perhaps, I had been adopted. They never assume Landon's the adopted one. Ever. Big surprise. After seeing Landon at Willowbrook, I came straight here, to the Abbey. He told me not to do it. But if he wanted me to stay away, maybe he shouldn't have gone ahead and made a mess of things. If he won't make sense, then this place is all I have to go on. I want to find a clue printed somewhere against this pallet stone. A relic which might unlock the secret to his foundering. The abbey boasts thirty-five windows across the front side alone, with black shutters adorning each and every one. All the windows are broken, too. Or, at the very least, cracked beyond repair. There are two chimneys, one in the middle and another off to the side. Spindly brush creeps up around the foundation. A loose pool of ivy hangs from a slate roof shingle. It surely has the look of something haunted. It's abandoned, after all, and does it take much more than that? It's remote, unnerving. The early winter chill has even lent itself to the ambience. But looks don't make a place bad. I know that. And so does Landon. A week. That's how long it took my brother to crack. One week alone with this place but not even alone. His crew had been hired to clear some branches away from the power lines. He was here with four other guys. None of the others experienced dizzy spells, or headaches, or paranoia. Something about the Abbey had found a way to infect my brother, but no one else. Without taking my eyes from the building, I reached for the camera strap against my shoulder and unbuttoned the front of the case, freeing the lens. I turn the power on and hold the viewfinder up, and one, two, three, click. The camera gurgles, then ejects a small sheet of photo paper out the side. While I wait for the picture to develop, I snap another shot, this time of the three first-floor windows at the end, the ones through which Landon claimed to have first seen her. I check one Polaroid, then the other. The images are still coming into focus. It takes forever. I drop both pictures into the car through the open window and walk around the property. There's a square of stone near the front steps with an inscription, something in Latin. B. 
Below that, there's a Cairo, which really just looks like a long P with an X through the bottom. We weren't raised religious or anything, but I remember that Cairo means Christ, because our foster mother had a necklace with that symbol on it in silver. Said it had been passed down by her mother, and her grandmother before that. I don't have any heirlooms. Neither does Landon. There are the given names from our birth parents, I suppose, but nothing more. I take a few more pictures, bringing the total to six. It was a ten-photo cartridge, but the four Landon had already taken were all too blurry to gather much from looking at them. The pictures, he said. You'll see. The pictures. When I run out of film, I take out my phone, but the battery is pretty drained, and halfway through trying to take a picture, the screen goes black. Still, I linger, reluctant to leave quite yet. I walk around to the rear of the abbey, though the landscape is overgrown. An itchy sea of tall grass and dead leaves. I circle back to the front and try peering in through one of those broken windows, tipping up onto my toes as I get a better look inside. It's dark, bathed in dull gray light, only because there aren't any curtains to shelter the room. A room which looks so dismantled, it's hard to determine what it had been before. A kitchen? Or a living room? Do these places even have living rooms? I didn't even know abbeys were something actually found outside the Vatican until I got a call about Landon. I walk to the far corner of the building, run my fingers against the dirty gray stone. He'd bashed his head into the wall right here, under where part of the gutter is dangling from the roof. He slammed his head against it over and over until the blood got in his eyes and he couldn't see, like he was trying to crack his own skull, force the wrongness out. The doctor from Willowbrook said he was convinced there was something festering in his brain, something he had to exercise. There's no blood now, though, not even in the grooves. The workman must have washed it away. I tilt my head, squinting as if it will help me see what my brother saw. Only it doesn't. Because I know, and my brother knows it too. There's no such thing as ghosts. Motel towels smell like they've been left out in the rain and then set to dry on a radiator. Still, it feels good to be washed. Dry. Alone. Since our foster parents had five to tame, we learned quickly growing up that quiet was a sacred gift obtained by those who took long walks in the afternoon and snuck around on tiptoe late at night. It's strange, the things that stay with a person ten, twenty years on. Does Landon remember it all the same way I do? Is how we remember everything what makes us different? Or the same? Or both? Carefully, I fan out all six of my pictures on the bed, then do the same with the Landon's four. They'd handed the camera and the pictures over to me at the center. Landon had instructed them to do so. This camera. I gave it to him nearly two years ago as... What exactly? It was for his birthday, yes, but the camera wasn't just a gift. It was an offering, one which I used to assuage my own guilt because I knew he didn't want me moving so far away. And because I did it anyway. I always do everything anyway. And look where it's gotten us. The only thing worse than motel towels are motel mattresses. I arrange and rearrange the pictures atop the bed's burnt brown comforter. I can practically feel the dried-in sweat of a thousand strangers against the fabric. One of my own photographs is blurry, but it doesn't matter, because the angle on it is bad anyway. I think. I can never understand why Landon loves these cameras so much. They're unreliable, and expensive to keep on using. Landon isn't the expensive type. No, 
He's the kind who superglues holes in his shirts to make them last longer. He's the kind who uses paper towels until they're nothing but shreds. I pick up the picture featuring those front three windows and lean in close. A Polaroid doesn't maintain a chemical smell, but the idea that it should is enough to flood my senses. Turpentine. That's what it smells like. What I expect it to smell like. Even though I know that's not what the smell would be at all. The picture is dark. My brother only buys black and white film. But I can still make out where the walls converge to create a corner. A ledge that looked like the side of a counter. I reach over the motel end table and pull a bottle of gin out of a brown paper bag taking a long swig from it before wiping my lips with the back of my hand. The gin had been a necessary acquisition after seeing Landon. He'd look so... unlike himself. Unlike the person I needed him to be. Do you remember it? When he asked that question, it was in a low, raw voice, as we sat so perfectly still in that big, sunny room. It was as if all tenderness had been scraped out from the bottom of each word, leaving every syllable hollow, infinite. The emptiness of the room amplified what felt like an exhaustive echo. So he asked, and I pretended not to know what he was talking about, because it was easier that way, at least for me. My response seemed only to upset him more. He frowned, then sighed, then smirked. She hasn't forgotten either, he said. I lift the next photo between two fingers, take another gulp of gin, and shut my eyes so tight a colorless blotchiness envelops the darkness. The muscles in my eyes ache. I open them again and stare at the Polaroid. The picture shows a broad, weathered door centered in the frame. From seeing it in person, I knew the door was a deep red. But here in black and white, it looks dull and unremarkable. Even with its desperately splintered wood, a big crack slanted through the center. The door is boarded up now. They'd boarded it up after the incident with Landon. I imagine what must be hiding in that deep gash across the middle. Insects, dirt... Pollen carried by the wind. The contents of it must be so remote. So lonely. A chill creeps across my spine and I press the neck of my pale green sweater closer to my throat in a feeble attempt at feigning warmth. Our foster parents never used to turn the heat on high enough when we were kids. Most nights when Landon and I couldn't sleep, we'd go downstairs with a blanket to watch TV for a while. We'd pop a bagel in the toaster and, when it was done, each take half. He put butter on his, I put cream cheese on mine. Then we'd settle in on the couch, our faces set aglow by the soft gray light of old black and white movies. There were a bunch of them on VHS. Our foster father loved them. But most of the movies had been recorded off the television, complete with outdated commercials. Landon liked the familiarity of these ads. Even knew some of them by heart. The blanket we'd share was red. I remember that. A deep, rich, tender red, similar to the red of that old split abbey door. The blanket was red and square and just a little too short. We were always fighting for more of it. There were other blankets in the house. But we always wanted this blanket. Neither one of us was ever willing to relinquish it to the other. The third Polaroid picture I examine is the crispest of them all, with the best light, offering a full, clear view of the building. Nearly a dozen windows lined across each of the three floors, some of which reflected the clouds overhead. Do you think it was our fault? That's what Landon asked me this morning. His hands nodded together atop the table, while his stare burrowed through the sunlit window pane at the far end of the visiting room. No. 
Why not? I didn't have an answer for him then. Don't have one for him now. There is only that cord stitched throughout my insides, tying me all together, keeping me calm and tethered and sure, sure beyond all certainty that I can't let it be my fault. Chewing on the edge of a hangnail, I dropped the picture back onto the bed. The gin is starting to gurgle in my stomach. I grab the room key off the nightstand, head out into the black-skied evening. It's so frigid outside, even the stars have gone and sought shelter. There's not one in the sky. I consider going back in for a jacket, but don't, instead heading up to the front office. The light is still on, despite the hour. And there's a woman inside behind the counter. She's extraordinarily tall, somewhere in her late fifties, with a newspaper perched in one hand, a pencil in the other. The door doesn't jingle when I walk in, but it does creak like a dying bird. What's an eleven-letter word for sadness? She asks abruptly. If Landon were here, he might find the timeliness of her inquiry funny. I don't laugh. My grip around the room key tightens, and when I don't say anything, her gaze shifts upward warily. Depression? She asks. I count it in my head. That's ten letters. Gloominess? That's ten two, I think. Her lashes lathered in thick mascara lower as her stare returns to the newspaper. Melancholia, maybe? I suggest. How many letters is that? She stops, counts on her fingers, and lets out a puff of air through her nose. Melancholia, she says, writing the word into the crossword. When she does, she leans back and nods, seemingly satisfied. However did you think of that? I can't remember how I know the word. From a book, maybe. I liked history as a kid. That's why I became a professor of it, right? Not because I'm preoccupied with the past. Landon couldn't stand school. Only continued to go because I wouldn't drop out with him. The woman at the desk doesn't seem too preoccupied with my credentials. She's already back to the newspaper, her lips moving as she silently reads the next clue. Do you have any takeout menus? I ask. She gestures with the pencil at a pile near the corner of the counter. I take the first pamphlet off the top and look down at the thin, green, careful cursive printed across the faded yellow background. Angelo's Pizza and Grill. This place any good? Revolting. I raise an eyebrow. She looks up. Revolting. That's nine letters, right? I nod. She pencils the word in. Can I take this with me? I ask, holding up the menu. Without looking up again, she nods and I leave, causing the door to give another moan. I make my way back across the parking lot. Wish a few stars would come out to join the moon. Inside my room, I grab the phone on the desk in the corner. It turns out I left my cell charger back in Nebraska, so all I've got is this landline. I punch in the number for the pizza place and order a small plain pie and return to the pictures on the bed with renewed hopelessness. I can hear Landon's voice in my head, telling me I can't stomach so much grease with alcohol. Never have been able to do it. But he's not here to stop me. Five blurry photographs, five clear ones that don't seem to say much about anything. I want more gin, but I don't reach for the bottle, telling my already tipsy self that I need a clear head. I'd done some research on the Abbey before driving up here, not that there had been much to find. No tragic accidents or brutal murders, no history of desperate pain or great suffering to speak of. It had been an abbey for nearly a hundred years, and then the upkeep became too much and it was put on the market. 
That was three years ago. It hasn't sold yet because, really, who needs an abbey? I don't know what happened to the monks or brothers or whoever it is who occupies an abbey. I guess they moved. It happens. Growing up, Landon and I moved around all the time. I space my five photos evenly apart and drink some more gin and study the stone and glass and half-caved-in roof as best I can. When the food arrives, I answer the door and pay the red-headed teenager and put the hot box on the corner of the bed. The warm, cheesy smell rising from beneath the cardboard makes my mouth water. Only I don't eat. I can't. Not with Landon's voice buzzing in my head. Don't trust her. Whatever you do, don't trust her. Promise me. One of my pictures is too dark, so I cast it aside to the blurry pile and readjust the remaining four into the formation of a square. The pictures are so small. How does Landon justify doing all this for such tiny little pictures? He's a stubborn one. The bite-your-nose-to-spite-your-face type. Most traits aren't inherited. They're learned. And I probably learned my own obdurance from watching him. At last, I open the pizza box and take out a slice. Cheese dangles from the edges and the piece is about halfway to my mouth before I realize I should probably have a plate. I hop off the bed and walk around to the other side, eating over the box. One slice, then two. When my stomach feels sufficiently full, I close the box up and put it on the desk by the television, then return to the nightstand for another round of gin. Landon used to take the most beautiful photographs when we were growing up. Our foster parents encouraged him, let him play around with an old camera they had, even bought him film. I think that's what made it so hard on us. They were nice people. Really, they were. According to one of the guys he works with, the one with whom I'd spoken on the phone after I got the first call from Willowbrook, he hasn't talked about taking pictures in over a month. Not since he brought the Polaroid camera to the job site. That's not like him. Landon is a rambler. Always has been. He'll talk and talk and talk until there's nothing left to say. Then he'll go ahead and talk some more. Maybe he was losing it before the Abbey. That's what I keep telling myself. Maybe he was already halfway gone. I know that's not true, though. I can't pinpoint why exactly, it's just something I know. The familial bond is not just circuited through DNA. It comes with time, and trust, and experience. If Landon had been different these last few months, I would have sensed it when I talked to him on the phone. I would have been able to tell based on the pictures he'd email me. He was pissed that I'd left, but it didn't stop him from calling, writing, leaving voicemails. Landon is a language I read fluently. So, what is he speaking in now? What language has he learned in my absence? I look at the four photographs centered on the comforter and take the two which aren't blurry and hold them up side by side. The three windows. And the door. He went inside. That's what the guy from the site had said. He got there early on their last day and went inside. By the time they arrived, he was curled up on the floor in the maybe living room, sobbing. They coaxed him out, got him halfway to the truck when he went and tried to bash his head in. And from there we have tumbled into now. He's over at Willowbrook. And I'm alone with my gin in an empty motel off Route 46. I grab my purse and shove those two pictures inside. Then I throw in my room key and grab the gin and head out to the car. I place the bottle on the passenger seat, tempted almost to buckle it in. I feel around for my keys in the dark, hooking a finger through the key ring and drawing them up and out of the purse. Don't trust her. Places invert themselves in the night. All that concentrated darkness, 
It has to be directed somewhere, and so it distorts, rearranges, reappropriates. It's incredible how different a room or even a person can look cloaked in shadow. Not the Abbey, though. The Abbey looks just as it had in the middle of the afternoon. Stark. Lonely. Quiet. I pull up onto the dirt road and lift the parking brake up and pull down the visor. I open the mirror just so the light will turn on, and I can see the pictures more clearly. Only one of the two is in focus. The picture of the windows all lined up. Mountainous jagged glass stretched from one to another to another. And there, in the last window, her face. I blink once, then twice, then manically. My eyes strain from the motion, and the proximity, and the wrongness of it. She's there, right there, in black and white. How did Landon know? I drop the pictures and they flutter into the darkness of the car floor. I grab the gin and remove the cap and take a drink that lasts not five or ten, but a full fifteen seconds. When the mouth of the bottle slides out from between my lips, my head is spinning with dizzying, frenetic energy. I can feel it in my toes, in my fingertips. I get out of the car, even though the engine is still on. The headlights open up a path across the grass. I follow the light. Don't trust her. Don't trust her. Reaching the door, I stop and allow my body to sway gently with the quiet. When I exhale, my crisp breath clouds in front of my face. It's freezing. My ears feel so numb, they almost burn. Don't trust her. Don't trust her. The door is boarded too tightly shut. I can't pry any of the planks loose. So I go around to that window the one in which she'd been standing in the picture. I remove my sneaker and use it to knock what remains of the glass out of the window. Then I go ahead and slip my foot back into the shoe, and without tying the lace up again, hold fast to the window frame and pull myself inside. The room is bigger than I thought it would be. There's furniture, too, an outdated formerly blue sofa and some kind of three-legged coffee table. Light graffiti covers most of the walls. This was the room they'd found Landon in. He'd been over there, maybe, on the floor, by a few cast-aside two-by-fours. My head sways. My vision sways with it. I wish I'd brought the gin inside. I listen, half expecting to hear Landon's voice pour out from some deep, dark corner. It doesn't. Instead, my eyes begin to adjust to the shadows. With apprehensive fingers, I place a hand to the wall. It's leathery, with bumps and grooves indicative of water damage across wallpaper. Was there wallpaper here? It's impossible to tell. The room smells of mold and mildew and ash. It shouldn't smell like ash, but it does. Or maybe I'm just imagining it. It's a hard odor to forget. I spin around. The floorboards creak. I spin again. A raccoon somewhere, surely. Or rats. Don't trust her. Don't trust her. Don't trust her. At first, what I see looks like the echo of a shadow. Light from the car refracted through broken windows and damaged walls. But soon the curves of her cheeks come into focus. The line of her brow. I expect her skin to be white-brown, a roasted marshmallow color. Only it's as smooth and clear as I remember it being. Except for the eyes. Her eyes are charred. Not burned out completely, but toasted and swollen. 
as she nears. I can smell the ash on her skin. The scent of it thickens and thickens. This can't be what she looked like. Her whole body should be covered in blisters or swelling. She should be shriveled and empty and dead. That's the thing, isn't it? She should be dead. Because we fell asleep on that couch, and the bagel started a fire in the toaster, and the house went up in flames. Everyone got out, except for our foster mother. She'd gone to find us, not realizing we weren't in our beds. She died looking for us, screaming our names. Do you think it was our fault? No. Why? Landon asked. Because she didn't have to come for us. She could have saved herself. It was her responsibility to save herself. And she didn't. I don't even realize I'm backing away, not until my shoulders come up against the wall. Her form moves closer, not like a ghost suspended or a woman walking, but as if the room is just eliminating the space between us, drawing us to one another. Her overcooked eyes stare blankly into mine, and the room spins, and my stomach lurches, and I vomit pizza and gin all over the floor. A piece of cheese dangles from my lip, but I don't dare brush it off. Because my hands can't move, and my lungs can't take air in, they are too filled up with her ash. My brain can't reconcile any of it, and so it slowly starts to boot down, trying to turn itself off so that it might restart correctly again. Only I don't black out, and I don't fall to the floor. I breathe in the smokiness of her lips, and when I exhale, that soot-stained air expands in a thin cloud between us. She hasn't forgotten. Had we? There were times in the purest quiet of night when I had been able to convince myself that the memory wasn't real, that it had never happened. I'd hold still and close my eyes and think... If the world can't find me, then that night can't either. Am I dead? I ask her. Her head tilts to the side, but she does not speak. I'm afraid of what might fall out if those cracked lips were to part. Blood. Ash. Broiled tongue. She's been looking for us all along, hasn't she? That's what Landon suspected, surely. Or maybe we were looking for her. Rigidly, I start sliding along the edge of the wall towards the window. With each step, she realigns in front of me with perfect symmetry. Her hair dark and thick and wavy. She always pulled it back during the day, but at night she left it loose. It would have just looked like this on that night. One of my fingers twitches involuntarily, tempted to reach out and touch it. We didn't... I begin, but my voice wanes. There's so much smoke in my throat, it burns. I reach for the windowsill, but her hand takes my wrist, and immediately the hiss of searing flesh is drowned out by a scream. My scream. I am screaming and scrambling and falling through the window and onto the broken glass, and there's a piece sticking out of my arm, but I don't remove it. No, I stand, and I stumble, and I'm halfway to the car when I see the Latin inscription, lit up by the headlights. I look at the Cairo. She'd been wearing it. Our foster mother. She'd been wearing it the night she died. The symbol on the stone looks like it's been marked in ash. My fingers reach out. Only the heat radiating from the stone is too much. The tips of my fingers haven't even touched the stone when a searing pain slices through them. 
I shift back instinctively. I stumble. Stop. Stumble some more. And run. I run back to the car and slam the door and shift into reverse and drive out of there with nothing but the singular need to be anywhere else. I drive and I drive until I reach the motel, and parking crookedly about a foot onto the walkway outside my room, my shaking hands search the floor for that photograph, the one in which I'd seen her face. When I feel the paper against my fingertips, I pull it up and flip open the light and look down at the picture. But it's no longer clear. The image is fading, blurry, lost. I can't see the windows anymore, let alone her face. Do you think it was our fault? Landon's question hums in my brain. I check my wrist for the burn, can still feel the flesh smoldering, but find no markings on the skin, only the shard of glass in my arm from which blood has seeped through my sweater. I pull the glass out, the blood is wet. It smells of gasoline. Or turpentine. Or rot. And soot. Always soot. I look down at my fingers. They're blistered and red. The image of the Cairo throbs in my brain. Pulsing. 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 I can feel my thoughts cracking. Crumbling. Do you think it was our fault? I try to breathe, but the signal between my mind and my body is severed. My body won't work. It is limp, useless. Burning not from the outside, but from within. A steady release of molten sensations across every organ. Every bone. Gasoline. The smell of gasoline. Do you think it was our fault? It doesn't matter. It can't. Because there's no such thing as ghosts. That was Emily Ruth Verona's The Abbey, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family when they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, Kathy Robinson, Lesel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. 
Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we recite from dusty ancient tomes with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 